Today's reading is taken from the book of Genesis and we start at the very beginning, Genesis 1 verse 1 and we go right through to Genesis 2 verse 3. The beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it. And it was so. God called the expanse sky. And there was evening and there was morning, the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land and the gathered waters he called sea. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds and trees bearing fruit with seeds in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night and to let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the expanse of the sky to give light to the earth to govern the day and to the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created the giant creatures of the sea, and every living and moving thing with which the water teems according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number, and fill the water in the seas, and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creatures that move along the ground, and wild animals, each according to its kind. 
And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all of the beasts of the earth and all of the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made and it was all very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Welcome to lockdown three. You're joking, not another one? Now, in November this year, God willing, there will be the latest UN meeting to discuss the climate emergency. Not another one? It will take place here in the UK, in Glasgow, and tens of thousands of churches across the world are praying and talking and planning, joining in with many others to push our governments to recognise the climate emergency and to act on it. Now, the global pandemic we've been grappling with has both eclipsed the climate emergency, we've got plenty of other things to think about, and it's highlighted it as we suddenly have seen more clearly the need to reset our relationship with the natural world. But in case you need a succinct reminder, here's the challenge that we're facing. Not another one? Standing here in the English countryside, it may not seem obvious, but we are facing a man-made disaster on a global scale. In the 20 years since I first started talking about the impact of climate change on our world, conditions have changed far faster than I ever imagined. Before we started to burn coal, the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere was about 280 parts per million. It's now over 400 parts per million. And the planet gets warmer and warmer. 
we are seeing the impacts of climate change now play out in real time. They're no longer subtle. We're not just talking about an inconvenience. We're talking about people's lives, their livelihoods, and their communities being damaged. Join the dots. It's happening. It's happening in your world. It's happening in my world. And let's be very clear about this. It is going to get much worse. It may sound frightening, but the scientific evidence is that if we have not taken dramatic action within the next decade, we could face irreversible damage to the natural world and the collapse of our societies. There are thousands of scientists around the world in almost every single country working to understand what will happen in the future if we don't act, we don't do more. They predict that if we carry on as we are now, where CO2 continues to increase, we would hit one and a half degrees global warming by between 2040 and 2050. We're on course to go through 1.5 degrees in just a few decades time, and the models differ slightly as to exactly when. And not long after that, we're on a trajectory to go through two degrees. It really becomes difficult to see at such levels of warming how we're going to maintain our agriculture such that the population of the world can actually feed itself. And ensuring people have access to clean, safe drinking water will become much more difficult. Developing countries that are at the front line of this battle. Those parts of the globe which will suffer the most and the soonest are not those parts of the globe which have actually loaded all those carbon dioxide in the atmosphere in the first instance. But you have to understand this is also a crisis for the world. The fact is that if the poor are suffering today, then the rich will also suffer tomorrow. We're running out of time, but there is still hope. It's actually not that complicated. We need to shift our energy system away from fossil fuels that produce greenhouse gases and, and towards renewable energies that don't. We still have time to turn everything around, to, to pull the emergency brake and to take action. But that short period of time isn't going to last for long. There's a message for all of us in the voices of these young people. It is, after all, their generation who will inherit this dangerous legacy. We now stand at a unique point in our planet's history, one where we must all share responsibility, both for our present well-being and for the future of life on Earth. So, a question. Why do some Christians have reservations about declaring a climate emergency? A couple of things. Firstly, I think some Christians don't trust the people who are sounding the alarm. Some Christians don't trust or like scientists, to put it bluntly, and naturally it's climate scientists who are leading the way in declaring this emergency. Some Christians think of scientists as uniformly against Christian faith, or as blaming theology or the church for getting us into this mess whilst in fact a huge number of climate scientists are professing Christians. Other uh, Christians feel, well, the people banging the drum seem to be a bit flaky, a bit new age, a bit pantheist, there's a, there's a bit too much tree-huggery going on. 
Uh, we concede that David Attenborough is a national treasure, they say, but he's not a Christian. So why should we take his warnings seriously? Secondly, for some Christians, there's the belief that the world is not our home, that we're only passing through it. Now, as a staff team, we've been reading our way through 1 Peter, which is an immensely powerful little book that is written to a small suffering church. One of the things that Peter does is to remind us that our citizenship is in heaven, that we're not of this world, that we're just passing through. We have a rich seam in our theology, from which I'm really grateful, warning us against feeling too at home here, uh, too wrapped up here, at a place that we know is imperfect. But taken the wrong way, we can just think, well, why should I bother? Uh, this place is going up in smoke anyway, and I've got souls to save, so I'm not going to worry about the earth. I think thirdly, Christians share a common inertia with many in the Western world. We simply don't want the cost and the faff of a changed lifestyle. And we don't like being bossed around. I would like very briefly to lay out the foundations of a biblical case for why we should care for creation and why the climate emergency is something we should take very seriously. We're going to have a Q&A straight after this service. So do dive into that with deeper questions and questions about more specific biblical texts. And there'll be three of us to answer those. One key question is this, whose earth is it anyway? Psalm 24 verse one says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. And then in Psalm 115 verse 16, we hear the highest heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth he has given to humankind. So the answer is complex. The earth is God's, he made it and established it, but he's given it to us to look after. The next important texts come in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. In Genesis 1.26 we read, let us make humankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Here we see for the first but not the last time, the double uniqueness of women and men. We are unique in creation because we are image bearers of God, fearfully and wonderfully made, or uh, to say we are design classics. You may recognize that from last year. But we are also unique in creation because we are appointed stewards of creation, caretakers of this beautiful place. Whilst we live, we are cooperating with God's mandate for the whole earth to be fruitful. In Genesis 2.15 we read, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. The Hebrew word translated here as work really means to serve. We are serving creation when we take responsibility for it. And the word translated as take care of means to have a watchful, careful eye on something. Think of a parent overseeing a toddler at play in the sandpit. So we are stewards 
looking after the estate. It's God's estate, not our estate. In saying so, we recognise that some have used this idea of humanity having dominion over the earth as an excuse, frankly, to trash the place, to do what we want with it. This is not what we are tasked with. That is just human pride and greed. It's rebellion against God, a refusal to take care of what he has put in our hands. And lastly, we need to take on board all the commandments for equality and justice and self-control in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. For instance, the Mosaic law commands that we shouldn't exploit the land. So the land was rested every seventh year. Every 50th year, land was returned to its original family owners. We care about creation because it is the world's poorest who suffer the most when the creation is abused. And because those of us who live in the developed world have contributed hugely to the problems that afflict the poor. It is literally not fair. Caring for creation is simply loving our neighbour, putting things right between us, asking for their forgiveness for the consequences of our greed. Unbridled consumption which we are experts in, is a sin because of its effect on the earth and other people. So, if we had to give an answer in a couple of sentences as to why Christians are and should be deeply concerned for the earth, what would we say? We would say God created the earth beautifully and fruitfully. He entrusted it to our care to tend and look after and learn from. And one day God will recreate the earth. He promises a new heaven and a new earth. That's why we repent of our extravagance and our pollution and our destruction. I have no idea where you are personally on this issue. Maybe you're working through reservations and distrust of the climate panickers. Maybe you're sort of committed, but you're not bothered enough to do very much. Maybe you're a committed eco-church enthusiast. We invite you to consider the Bible's teaching very carefully and see the responsibility that it lays on all of us, a responsibility that increases in a crisis. We especially invite you not only to consider and to ponder, but to take action. Some of you are extremely well placed in organisations and business to help bring real and lasting change that makes a big difference. Please do. Some of you are starting out in working life. Please lead the way with new technologies, new ideas to help us care for the world. And every single one of us lives in a household. If you're a bit paralysed as to what to do at a household level, here is an introduction to a wonderful Christian organisation called Creation Care. They specialise in helping households care for creation. Let's see what they say. We know the earth is the Lord's. He made it and it is good. We know creation is in trouble because of the actions of humans. We know we're commanded to love our neighbours, but we also know our neighbours around the world are suffering the effects of the damage we have done to the earth. We know as Christians we must do something, but maybe we don't always know what. The Creation Care Scheme is designed to help households systematically look at seven areas of their life 
to see where they're doing well and give ideas for how they can better care for God's creation in each of these areas. These areas are worship and prayer, home, garden, travel, food, possessions and community and global engagement. It's designed to help households work out what their next steps are in caring for God's creation, whether they're completely new to this or have been trying to live sustainably for years. You can sign up for a monthly email, focusing on a different area each month, giving hints and tips. It's also designed to help us celebrate our successes with bronze, silver and gold awards. Sign up today to work out what your next steps are in caring for God's wonderful creation. Do please look up Creation Care and get their help with valuable ways of caring for your part of the planet. This is something that we already care deeply about as a church and straight after our prayers, Liz will be telling us just how close to securing an Arosha Bronze Eco Church Award we are. They are very hard to get, rightly so. So just how close are we?